0: Take a walk around Chicago, or Boston, or New York, or Denver, or San Diego, and look up at the street corners. Depending on the neighborhood, you might see a little white box.
1: The devices are on top of buildings and also utility poles and other structures.
0: That's Jim Daly. He's the investigations editor at Southside Weekly, a community newspaper in Chicago
1: and they're sort of oblong white boxes that look like the sort of thing that could pick up sound.
0: They look like they could pick up sound because they do pick up sound. Jim's describing a device called a shot
1: spotter. The way that it works is the microphones detect loud noises that then Computer algorithms determine our gunshots, then a human technician reviews it to confirm that it's a gunshot or not. And then the technician, if they confirm it, alerts the local police department to the location of the shooting. Jim
0: says there are up to 3,000 of these sensors across Chicago. More than half of the city's police districts use them.
1: It's in districts primarily that are on the south and west sides of Chicago, which, um, because Chicago is a very segregated city, are disproportionately black and brown communities.
0: In theory, Spotter keeps communities safe by quickly drawing police to the location of gunfire. But in practice... It's not
2: so simple. ShotSpotter does not lead to a reduction in gun violence in our communities. What it does lead to is false reports. There has been incidents where we've had individuals putting a roof on and using a, uh, a nail gun. And uh, that, of course, is similar to gunfire. Although we have been successful in litigating several cases involving ShotSpotter, we are unable to determine how many innocent people have been falsely accused at the hands of this technology. Last week,
0: Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson announced he was severing the city's contract with ShotSpotter and that he has no plans to renew it.
1: I think a lot of the activists who have been pushing for this for many years were very pleasantly surprised. A number of city council members immediately decried it and uh, have already introduced legislation to try and force the city to keep ShotSpotter. Uh, We'll see how that plays out over the next few months.
0: According to the company behind ShotSpotter, The devices are used in more than 150 cities across the country.
1: Supporters of the tech say that it is integral to the police's ability to do their job, essentially. So the proponents of the technology are saying that by taking it out of these communities, there's a possibility that the police will not be able to get to victims quickly enough and people could die. Whether or not that's true remains to be seen.
0: Today on the show, high-tech policing might make some people feel safe. But does it really work? I'm Mary C. Curtis, in from Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
2: This show is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it can seem that the best treatment is reserved for only a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special.
0: Jim, you've been covering ShotSpotter for several years now.
1: What drew you into this reporting? I started focusing on police and public safety in 2020, around the time George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police, and there were rebellions and protests in Minneapolis and Chicago and elsewhere. That was when I started investigating the Chicago Police Department, initially looking at their responses to those protests and incidents of police brutality during those protests. And in Chicago, ShotSpotter really became a mainstream issue when a young boy named Adam Toledo was killed by the Chicago police after a ShotSpotter alert drew them to his location. Toledo was 13 years old and he was with a grown man who had allegedly been shooting a gun at passing cars. And that triggered a ShotSpotter alert that brought Chicago police to the scene. The man had handed the gun off to Toledo who ran away with it. He was chased by a cop. He ultimately dropped the gun and turned around with his hands raised. His hands move upward and Officer Stillman fires one fatal shot into the teenager's chest. His death became a flashpoint because it was so soon after the murder of George Floyd and it sort of happened within the same political atmosphere, if you will. And the fact that ShotSpotter was part of that response really, I think, gave the movement to cancel ShotSpotter a lot of steam and um, ultimately enough political capital to get a candidate for mayor in Brandon Johnson to promise to cancel it.
0: Now, do some of the people in these communities facing violence say, wait a minute, let's use ShotSpotter at least as an attempt to do something to alleviate the violence even if it is an imperfect solution.
1: Yes. There was a public meeting a couple of weeks ago ahead of the announcement of the cancellation and during the public comment of portion of that meeting, people spoke in favor and against ShotSpotter. And a number of people who were community members said that they wanted to keep it in their community. There was one person in particular who spoke whose brother was a victim of a gun murder. And she spoke passionately about how had ShotSpotter existed, his life might have been saved. So within the communities themselves, there is debate about whether or not shot spotters should stay. Um, This sort of gets to a larger question about how communities that are most impacted by gun violence and also impacted by racist and abusive policing want to address gun violence. The contradiction between having over-policing and also to some degree under-policing where it's not really rooted in in the community, but it's this kind of reactive policing that's not actually fixing the core problems, means that those core problems remain and people in these communities want those problems fixed. They want to stop the violence by any means necessary. And some people see ShotSpotter as one tool to do that.
0: So there have been a lot of studies out there that call into question just how effective this technology is. But what do some of these findings say?
1: So in Chicago, there was a study a few years ago by the Office of Inspector General that really looked at the efficacy of ShotSpotter in terms of leading to evidence of gun crimes and also its impact uh, on policing in these communities. And that study found that ShotSpotter alerts led to documented evidence of a gun crime in fewer than 11% of cases. It also found that in communities where ShotSpotter was installed, the police had a more elevated response. There was a higher incidence of police stopping and frisking black and brown men. And other studies have found, for example, in areas where ShotSpotter is installed, 911 response times actually go down slightly. And they believe that that correlation is due to the police chasing ShotSpotter alerts and not having time to respond to 911.
0: And when they get there, because they know that, oh, wow, there might be a gunshot there, they maybe arrive on the scene a little amped up?
1: Yes. There was another study that actually found that the police, in in areas where they know shot spotter alerts happen, they tend to arrive more amped up and ready to jump out and engage. And in Chicago, this has had repercussions. Most recently, there was a case where a shot spotter alert went off. And it was unclear whether it was a gunshot or a firework, but the police arrived. They saw a man in his front yard and they opened fire on him immediately. Fortunately, they didn't hit him. And it turned out that it was just a firework. It was not a gunshot. The man did not have a gun.
0: Well, when confronted with these allegations, what's shot spotters' response? What do they say?
1: So it was after the OIG report came out, I think, that they really shifted their PR strategy from saying that they prevent gun crime or allow police to capture criminals to saying, well, what, what we actually do is allow the police to get there in time to save victims. So from a from a PR strat- perspective, that was their strategy. They've also commissioned their own studies that have attempted to poke holes in some of the findings of the independent studies, but it's sort of hard to really vet the results of those studies because they're bought and paid for by the company itself. The company claims that its technology works very well. It says that um, it's over 97% effective at catching gunfire. But one of the issues with that is that this is all asserted by the company and they don't really show the data to back it up. And there's no real way to do any sort of control study to see, are they actually capturing all of this gunfire?
0: You and your team did a lot of investigative reporting recently showing how the company hasn't always been as forthcoming to public safety officials as they should have been. What did you find?
1: So our reporting was based on internal company emails from ShotSpotter, as well as data that we obtained via public records requests from the city and the Chicago Police Department. And we found that in 2023, the police reported 575 incidents of verified gunfire that ShotSpotter sensors had missed in their coverage area. And that was sort of a big picture view that when we zoomed in and looked at these internal company emails, we found that there was an incident in December of 2022 where two men were shot in a hail of bullets. There were 55 rounds fired and there were three shot spotter sensors in the vicinity and none of them picked up the shooting. And when a public safety official in Chicago complained about this to the company, the internal emails that we reviewed showed executives saying, We have sensors that are broken or compromised by ambient noise, but obviously we can't tell the public safety official this. We need a better reason to give him than our sensors aren't working. I think what we found was that ShotSpotter was not always working as well as executives may have been representing to the city and that it often, frequently, missed critical shootings.
0: When Brandon Johnson ran for mayor of Chicago, he made police reform a central part of his campaign. He also promised to end the city's contract with ShotSpotter. When he won, ShotSpotter's stock took a nosedive. Soon after, the company behind ShotSpotter changed its name to Sound Thinking. But Jim says, despite these setbacks, the company is actually expanding.
1: They additionally, along with the name change, have expanded their product portfolio to include more policing technology than just the gunshot acoustic detection. Among other things, they, they've they picked up a predictive policing program using technology and algorithms to try and determine who might be involved in a crime. Predictive policing is sort of an unproven area of technology. It's unclear exactly what the predictive policing tool ShotSpotter is marketing does. We're not entirely sure yet. But we do have previous models from the Chicago police where they have attempted to roll out predictive policing technology that had disastrous results. One case in particular a few years ago the Chicago police had a program that was designed to predict who might be involved in a gun crime as either a perpetrator or a victim. And it generated thousands of names as being potential victims or perpetrators. The police began visiting one of the people that their predictive policing technology identified. But ultimately, because of the fact that they were visiting his house so often— People in the neighborhood believed that he was an informant, and he was ultimately shot as a result of that. He survived, but in that case, the predictive policing had the direct opposite effect that it was intended to. And the Chicago police sort of quietly moved away from that system.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break.
2: This episode is brought to you by SAP. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID 19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot: The Plague in the Shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Jim's reporting raises bigger questions about what's at stake when private companies partner with public institutions. He says that when his paper asked Shot Spotter about some major shootings its technology missed, they were stonewalled.
1: I think whenever Government is involved in a public-private partnership. One of the real problems that comes up is transparency. So we were able to get some information from the police department about these missed shootings. But we were only able to do so after they initially rejected our public records request, citing a trade secrets exemption that's in Illinois state FOIA law we appealed that to the attorney general and the attorney general ruled in our favor that that this was not actually a trade secret and forced the police to reveal this information but this was the first time that anyone had successfully gotten those records via a public records request other reporters had had it denied for years and when that lack of transparency exists in a public private partnership that has to do with public safety particularly when it's a public safety initiative that's sending officers to scenes of ostensible shootings, you need a lot of transparency to understand how that's working, how well it's working. Without that, I think it leads to potential for abuse or fraud or you know terrible accidents to happen.
0: Also, there's the matter of what the incentives are for a private for-profit company. How aligned are public safety and private profits?
1: ShotSpotter is a publicly traded company, so. As like any publicly traded company, their primary incentive is to increase shareholder value, which means if it's selling products that are reactive to gun violence, it doesn't have a huge incentive to see gun violence be reduced. Whereas municipalities, residents, citizens all want that to be the ultimate goal. We want less gun violence. Technology cannot really prevent violence. It can't uplift communities. It can't sort of raise the general standard of living. All it can do is give the police data to be in this reactive mode when they show up.
0: Nevertheless, when it comes to tackling gun violence or any systemic threat to public safety, Jim says police are often convinced that new and emerging technologies are the best path forward.
1: You see this in Recent years in everything from body-worn cameras to automatic license plate readers to surveillance cameras in Chicago, they're called PodCams. I think that there's various reasons why police like tech. They see it as more reliable than human witnesses. It's something that when you're on the stand in a trial, likely holds up very well because it has this perception of not having any bias. Um, it's just cold, hard facts. The current chief of the Chicago police, Larry Snelling, has repeatedly said that he is an advocate for technology-based policing. But again, all of that is very reactive. They're getting a gunshot alert and sending officers to the scene.
0: You've talked about uh, how shotspotter shot spotter may disproportionately affect communities of color in Chicago. Do you see that playing out across the country?
1: Yes when ShotSpotter was found to have its sensors overwhelmingly be in black and brown communities in Chicago by one study, their response was essentially, well, that's where the crime is, so that's where we're going to put our sensors. And this this is also the case um, in other cities where ShotSpotter is installed. In New York, in Detroit, elsewhere, it's overwhelmingly installed in black and brown communities. And, you know, I think it gets to the larger question about how we police cities. And this was something that came up during the George Floyd rebellions and has been part of the national conversation. And the issue always comes down to how police are policing these communities. I think this is absolutely an inflection point. Chicago has ShotSpotter's most expensive contract. It's losing a, a huge client. I think there is a possibility that other municipalities, when they're considering whether to renew the contract or sign a new contract for the first time, might look to Chicago and see this city that has gun violence as a problem, um, that was ShotSpotter's biggest customer and has been for you know over five years now, canceled the contract. They might think twice about signing up themselves.
0: How would it play out politically if gun violence were to go up after ShotSpotter is discontinued? There seems to be a lot riding on how this plays out.
1: I think that's absolutely true. That's a great point. If gun crime goes up in the months after ShotSpotter is expired, I think undoubtedly the people who want to keep it will say that it's because we canceled the contract with ShotSpotter, whether or not that's true. If gun crime goes down after ShotSpotter, I think that the argument can be credibly made that canceling the contract did not have a negative effect on gun crime. The conversation around ShotSpotter, especially in recent weeks as the contract was getting ready to expire, has overwhelmingly on both sides been you know driven by emotion and I think a, a fair amount of pathos as opposed to data and, and facts. And that will continue. I think that's true for a lot of political discourse uh, in this day and age. Um, and especially when it comes to public safety, a lot of it is is driven by victims of gun violence statements on one side and victims of police abuse on the other. And both of them have very legitimate points. And I think some politicians are willing to exploit that in in service of their own ends. And so that will continue.
0: Thank you, Jim Daly, for coming on What Next?
1: Thank you, Mary C. Curtis. It's a real thrill to to be here.
0: Jim Daly is the investigations editor at Southside Weekly. We reached out to the company behind ShotSpotter for comment. They did not respond, but the invitation still stands. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate+. Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus Plus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharne. We're led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. You can find me on Twitter at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, Judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.